Hi, my name is Pastor Daniel. I'm so excited you're taking an opportunity to watch this sermon. We believe that any time we open the Word of God, that we have an opportunity to be changed because the Bible is the actual live Word of our Heavenly Father. And we hope that this impacts you in a positive way. A quick word of caution, and that is that this sermon that you're about to watch is by no means uh, the church. It's not a substitute for a church. It's not a substitute for a pastor in your life. The church is not a building. The church is the body of Christ, a group of believers doing life together, worshiping and pursuing Jesus together. In no way should this be any sort of primary discipleship in your life, and in no way should this replace the pastor that somewhere God has called to shepherd you. We hope sincerely that you're part of a local church somewhere. And if you're not, I wanna encourage you to go find a local church to be part of, because for all of the ups and downs and messiness of the local church, the Bible calls it the bride of Christ. It is the hope of the world. And you need to be part of one because it'll help. If you don't know where or how to find a local church, we'd love to help. You can simply go to our website and email us at hello at resurrect.church and we'll do our best to plug you in. We appreciate your time. We hope that this supplementary discipleship impacts you in a positive way. We believe the Bible has a profound impact on us when we allow God to speak to us. Thanks. Theology without doxology, you just have dead, cold orthodoxy, which is horrible, right? On the other side, you have the people who say, ah, forget about theology, I just want to praise, right? But if you have doxology without theology, you actually have idolatry. All right. My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the executive pastors here. Uh, we're going to be talking about unity today. I'm going to give you a little bit of background, but what I need you to do is a little thought exercise before we get started. Hopefully you got your notes, your bulletin, you got your pen. I want you to think about the person, either now or in your church past, that has just been the most difficult church brother or sister to love. Okay? Now, I don't want you to write their name down because they might be sitting next to you. It might be really easy for you to imagine this person because they're already up on stage. <clears throat> Past your jokes. Okay. I want you to just think about them, right? The person is just the, the sandpaper, just this, oh, so difficult to love. I should keep that thought. We're going to get to them at the end today. Now, we're in a series called Teach Me How to Church. And the idea behind this, which is the book of uh, Ephesians chapter 4, is that uh, I believe, because we live in this sort of pseudo-Christian society of American evangelicalism, that every one of us, whether you've been in church your whole life or you've barely ever been in church, have all these strange notions about church. Now, whether they're really good or really bad, I mean, we have all of this stuff that has been built up in our society and our culture about what church should be like and what it's important and what the priority should be. And in order to do church together and be healthy, what I want to do and what we've, we've set out to do in this series is say, look, strip everything out of this. Strip, just go all the way down to the studs and start at the foundation. And, and we had three chapters of Ephesians, one, two, and three. It's all doctrinal, right? The riches of the glory of Christ, what he's done in, in coming to us and choosing us in, in the predestination, the adoption into sonship or daughtership of the king, like all that stuff. So, so, so this isn't doctrinal. This is application. 
Because you get to Ephesians chapter four, and Paul's going to say, because of all of these wonderful doctrinal truths, we should do blank. What I want to do in this series, what we're trying to do is say, look, there are a lot of important things, but what the Bible says is the priority about the church had better be our priority. Because it's the Bible, right? And anytime you and the Bible disagree, here's a hint, you're wrong. Right? We're all on the same page with that? Okay, I just want to make sure that you're not like, oh, I don't know, it's kind of up in the air. It's not thunder. The Bible's right. So, in the Bible, it's going to tell us what church should have in pre, have as preeminent or as a, a priority. And so we've spent, this is week four, covering a grand total so far of three verses, right? Going nice and slow, turtle pace, walking our way through this. And it started this way. I, which was the Apostle Paul, therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, our favorite words, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then today, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, so as a recap to get us to our starting point today, the Apostle Paul says, based on what God has done, you and I should be compelled to walk out this Christian faith. So we talked a lot about that, right? That it's a walk, not a plop. Everyone remembers we were here for that? Four of you? Okay, all right, we're doing great. Guys are dead today. All right. When we were singing about dry bones coming alive, that was you. <laughs> Just, okay. <clears throat> Walk out this Christian faith. And, and, and it, the things that will most um, characterize the walking out of this Christian faith are not legalism or morality. They're not holiness. They're not all, all these things, although some of these will absolutely be true about walking out the Christian faith. But the things that are, that are most indicative of walking out the Christian faith are, and we turn to verse 2 and it says, humility. It says, gentleness, right? You're like, not what I was hoping to hear today. Patience, bearing with one another in love. And then last week, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. So we should be motivated, not reluctant. We're maintaining, not creating, right? That's what Pastor Vance talked about last week. We didn't create the unity. Jesus created the unity. The spirit saved, like, like that was not us. We're, our job is to maintain it, to keep it going. It is spirit produced, not man-made. Because look, man-made unity never lasts, Right? Like if we're united around some sort of man-made thing, then it's temporary, it's not eternal, and there's no confidence in the temporary. So, so you and I could be united over a political cause, but that's going to go away. You and I could be united over a country, a national cause, but that's going to go away. Kingdoms rise and fall. Amen? So, so those aren't worthy of our confidence. We're united over what, what Christ's finished work on the cross, and that's eternal. And all of these things that the Apostle Paul is pointing at, they're proactive, Right? We hear this word eager. They're assertive. They're not passive. They're not plopping. So, so what is eager? What, is, what does it look like to be eager to be gentle? What does it look like to be eager to be meek? What does it look like to be 
to, to desire this lowliness of heart. I heard uh, John Piper say this week, it, it looked like, it, it's called, he calls it brokenhearted boldness. Brokenhearted boldness. I have this increasing confidence, but it's increasing not in me, but in what I see God doing through you and me. So, so there's a great confidence, but it ain't confidence in what I can get done. It's a confidence in what I see Christ doing through you. Eager to point to God, eager to talk about God, eager to meet Jesus, eager to encourage one another, eager to grow, eager to be humbled, eager to be corrected, everyone's favorite, right? We're all just coming into church hoping someone's going to come up and tell us what we're doing wrong today. Right. Eager to be rebuked, eager to forgive others' wrongs. Because these are real signs of humility. And then what's going to happen in verses four through six, which we're going to look at today, is Paul wants to put an exclamation point on this idea of eagerness to maintain unity. And he's going to give us these examples that he's going to weave in um, into these verses, uh, four, five, and six, that basically are going to both illustrate the standard of unity and the reason for unity. And so we want to go through that today. Here's your big takeaway. And then I'll break this into little, little chunks. But if you took nothing out, here's the statement that's the takeaway. Unity is a command because of its evangelistic impact, its Trinitarian nature. I know that's a big word. We'll explain it in a minute. Trinitarian nature and the slippery slope into idolatry. I think it said slippery slop in first service. So you guys got the upgraded one. <clears throat> I'm sure slop can also be slippery. Anyways. Unity is a command because of its evangelistic impact, Trinitarian nature, and the slippery slope into idolatry. Now, I want to prove five things about unity that we see in the text 3, 4, 5, and 6 in Ephesians 4. Um, unity, I want to submit to you, is actually a spiritual fruit. Now, the thing about unity being a spiritual fruit is that it is only... Real unity is only a byproduct of the Holy Spirit's work in us. Therefore, it's not something you and I can do on our own or of our own effort. Therefore, it has to be a fruit of the Spirit. Now, here's the interesting thing. The first point is this. It's only a fruit that can be grown in a group or by a group instead of an individual. So we're going to talk about that. Secondly, unity is the product of real Christian maturity. And we're talking a little bit about real Christian maturity because there's a lot of opinions about what a mature Christian looks like. And I would submit to you that unity will be the marker. Third, it is a command, not a suggestion. Fourth, it is critical for evangelism. And fifth, it is a true test of idolatry versus worship. So too long, didn't read. Group fruit, mature fruit, command, evangelism, idolatry test. There you go. Okay, we did that in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight words. Eight words, you're done. You could go have brunch. All right. <clears throat> it's a joke. Don't leave, please. All right. It's a group fruit. It's only a fruit that can be grown by a group instead of an individual. Uh, first, what you're going to see is that every time we see the call to unity in the New Testament, it's written to the body of Christ. It's written to the church, not to individuals, because I, we can't do this alone. So, so, so if, if, if Matt and I, as part of the body in Christ, if, if like he's really trying for unity and he's, he's loving me and he's bearing with me and everything else, but I'm a jerk, there's no unity. 
You understand how that works, right? It's not a one-sided thing. None of you, no, no, no. It's got to be both of us or unity doesn't get produced. Unity is only going to be produced in a group of people who are each living out this, walking out this walk that we see Paul describing. So it's never, unity is not something that can just be born up in an individual and then appear. It has to be done by the body. Now, there's a caveat here that we need to talk about because we live in a contentious age, and that is that unity is the call and the command inside the church, but it is not at all the expectation for the outside world. In fact, the Bible does not call us to unity with the outside world. Not even close. Listen to this in John 15, 18 through 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. This is Jesus. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So it is an expectation for the believer that the world is going to hate us. And if you seek to be loved by the world outside the church, you're, you're, you're seeking something that is absolutely dangerous and antithetical to the gospel. The world hated Jesus. The world's going to hate the people that are disciples of Jesus. Now, does that mean we get contentious with them because they hate us? Not at all. In fact, you return to 1 Peter 3.15, and he says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect gentleness and respect. So the expectation is unity inside the walls of the church, absolute chaos outside because we live in a dark and broken world in which the world will hate you if you follow Jesus. And yet your response to a hateful world who despises you simply for being Christian is to be ready at all times to explain why there's hope with gentleness and respect, gentleness and respect. That means the contrast between inside the walls of the church and outside the walls of the church, one is with unity, one is without unity, yet both are with gentleness. You don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to be gentle to those that agree with us. Do you understand what I'm saying? And then like not gentle with people that don't because you know, I'm just about the truth. Great, with gentleness and respect, according to the Bible. So, so let, me, let me explain what I mean. Uh, how many people have, have seen the, in the news last two weeks this, this, the, the controversy now about Roe v. Wade? Okay, actually more hands than first service. I don't know if that means you're listening or you just follow the news more. <clears throat> so uh, the controversy is that there's a draft. The Supreme Court is looking at potentially uh, putting out a ruling on a case. They might overturn Roe v. Wade. This is, of course, a hotly contested, you know, lots of controversy. One, uh, people are being wonderful to each other online right now. There we go. Your sarcasm meter is working. Our call, biblically, is absolutely to want to protect image bearers of Christ from the moment of conception. That's what the Bible says. With that said, it is to do so as we begin to speak with people, whether inside the church or outside the church, with gentleness and respect. So listen, y'all, 
That means on social media too. Okay? It, it doesn't mean we don't, we don't run into the conflict. It doesn't mean we stay silent about what the Bible says is the truth. It means, boy, you better have empathy. I, I had a long conversation uh, with a, a young mom this past week who is a very, very, very new believer in her faith and was just, I mean, very vocal about women's rights. And I was like, hey, let me just share a perspective with you. And by the end of that conversation, I got a message the next day. said, thank you so much for being easy on me. What she mean? She meant gentle. She meant thank you for being gentle. It doesn't matter if you have the truth if you're not gentle enough for people to listen to you. You get it? All right. So it's a group fruit. It's only a fruit that can be grown in a group instead of an individual. In the church, gentleness bearing with one another and maintaining the supernatural unity of the spirit, the bond of peace. If a church looks the same, thinks the same, has the same background, it's very easy to think that you're unified. When in reality, you're just similar. And that's not the same as unity. Do you see how that could easily be misconstrued? Unity, and you can really tell it's unity, when you don't look the same, don't act the same, don't smell the same, don't vote the same, don't come from the same backgrounds, don't come from the same cultural backgrounds, and yet are united. And that's what the blood of Jesus is intended to do. All right, so it's group fruit. Number two, it's a mature fruit. It's the product of real Christian maturity because it requires all of the other spiritual transformation work to actually be happening in order to actually get to unity. Okay, so, so for instance, you can have gentleness, but you have no patience and you're not getting to unity. You're gentle, but you're really impatient and it just doesn't seem like it's working. No, it's not. It's going to require gentleness and humility and bearing with one another and sacrificing and empathy because it requires all those things to actually get to unity. So it's a very mature fruit because it requires all the other things to be growing up in you. When you see a church that is naturally very different and yet still unified, you will see spiritual maturity. I... I um, I remember, this is probably a couple years ago. I was sitting in my office with uh, Russ, who's a really one of my closest friends. He's sitting on the couch, and I looked at him, and I'm kind of thinking. I finally looked at him. I said, why are we friends? And he was like, Daniel, I'm not prepared for this question. I don't even know what you mean. And I'm like, no, seriously. Like, we're nothing alike. Like, I'm very type A. You, you chase squirrels all day long for a living, I swear. Uh, I'm a little introverted. You are so extroverted. You tire me out just talking. I mean, you, we have nothing in common except for the gospel. Except we just love the Lord. And that's what Christian unity does. As, as God begins doing this work in us and in you, we find ourselves have this commonality that is greater than all of our differences. And the banner of Christ is one that we can unite under regardless of where we come from or what personality we have or how many squirrels we like to chase. So in, in verses four, five, and six, what Paul's gonna do is he's gonna remind you and I that the unity of the church that we were called to was created by God, but it also parallels the character of God. 
So he lists six facets of what of sameness, right? Six, six facets. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one father. And, and the passage four through six has these two little like um, rabbit trails, right? He starts to try to remind us of this and then he's like, oh, just as you recall, like a little, little afterthought, you could almost put it in like parentheses. And he gets back on this track to try to list like these, these, these facets of, of sameness. And then he, again, he's off on another rabbit trail and he's like overall, in all, through all. If, if you actually remove some of his like ADD thinking here, the, verse would, the verses would sound like this. There's one body and there's one spirit. And there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. That's how it would read. It's just Paul's all over the map. So let's talk about that. There's one body. What does that mean? There's one church. We live in America was a church on every corner. At least we're not in Texas, right? There's probably two on every corner. But you realize there's one church. The church is the bride of Christ, not the brides of Christ. This isn't the Old Testament world where they have like seven wives and they just fight with one another. Or is it? There is one body. That means every church preaching Christ crucified is the church. That means we, weren't, we were called to unity, not, not to divisiveness, not to argue with the church down the street. Like, it's crazy. One. There's one spirit, one Lord, and one Father. What, one Holy Spirit, one Jesus, and one Father. That's the Trinity. So in, in the middle of explaining unity, the Apostle Paul is going to use as the standard of what unity looks like as the Trinity, the very nature of God, how the, the, the Father loves the Son, how the Son loves the Father, how the, how the Son submits to the Father and does his will, how the Holy Spirit comes to, to make so much about Jesus. Like, like the actual relationship between the persons of the Trinity is the standard for how you and I should be United. Now that's a high standard. But it's the perfect standard. It is, it is the aim of the church to be united like the Trinity. So the Holy Spirit creates the body, creates the church by uniting us. Jesus creates the, faith, the one faith that we have. We are baptized with him and raised to new life and resurrection. And God the Father knits it all together in all, through all, over all of us. This is the concept we see Paul driving home when he talks about unity. Now, here, here's what I want to submit. Unity is one of the single most talked about things to the New Testament church. And I'm going to show you that in just a second. Like it, it is just constantly talked about. So just observations. We're in the first 80 years of the church. And he already has to talk about unity to every single church. Let's just consider why every single church needs a reminder about unity and they just started. Because they're fighting a lot. Because they're made up of messy humans like you and me. And so there's constantly got to go back and talk about unity. Listen to this. 
We've been reading the letter to Ephesus, to the church in Ephesus. Let me read to you from the letter that goes to the church in Philippi, in Philippians 2, 2, and 3. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, oh, there's that word again, value others above yourselves. Let's go look at the letter. There's two letters to the church in Corinth because they were like the Wild West biker bar of the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 in his first letter. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. How about the letter to the church in Colossae, Colossians 3, 13 through 14. Bear with each other, that should sound familiar, and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect, man, unity. Unity. divisiveness is not okay. In fact, we're told to have nothing to do with those who would stir up dissension. Literally, the Bible tells us to throw them out of church. You can imagine how the Karens of this world are going to feel about that. Boy, I want to talk to a manager. Sorry, Karen. Karen's a really nice lady. Why? Why? Because let me just, let's be honest, right? Um, there are plenty of organizations. Uh, think of a, a major corporation that's done a lot of things, Google or Apple or, or Starbucks, whatever, right? Think of somewhere. There's plenty of organizations and they don't have perfect unity. They have lots of dissension. They have conflict. They have arguments. They don't all think the same and they get plenty of things done. They're very effective. They can be very productive. So why does the church need perfect unity when no one else has perfect unity and it seems like they can get things done? We should be able to get lots of things done without actually having to be unified. Why is it such a big deal? Why do we have to get along? Why couldn't we just tolerate each other and not be in perfect unity? It'd be a lot easier. Like if I just didn't look to the left and to the right and looked at that one person that I told you to think about at the beginning of the service that really bothered you, I just pretended like they weren't there. Hello? It's a lot easier. Let's just avoid the conflict altogether. Let's just go around the stump, right? Like we don't need to pull it out. Why? Two main reasons, they were part of the list I gave you earlier. The first is this. The first one's evangelism. When we look at Jesus talk about the church in John 13, 35, this is what he says about what will be the church. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the reason that you, one of the two reasons that, that, that unity is so important in the church is that a diverse but unified church is a light on a hill. 
It's a beacon. It's a spotlight. It's a lighthouse. It's, um, it's the Luxor in Vegas when you drive in at night and you see that beam shooting up into outer space. You can actually see that from outer space. That's the church when it's different and still unified. It stands out. You know why? Because it's a miracle. Listen, some of y'all are like, yes, I know. It would be a miracle for me to tolerate that person. Yes, it is. That's the point. Listen, it's how you can point to these ancient historical texts from 2,000 years ago and say you can have confidence in this document from two millennia ago because you can see it being lived out in power in the church today. So, so it's not just that you have to say, man, I, I think there's authenticity to the Bible from 2,000 years ago. It's that I know there's authenticity to the Bible because I can see the power of Christ being lived out in people in the pews right now. So I look at the church as this manifestation of God's glory in you, and I go, the only thing that would ever explain people this diverse loving one another is a miracle. It's the testimony of the gospel. So it matters. And divisiveness is absolutely not, not something we tolerate. It's not okay. It's not okay to be like, well, I'm just about the truth. And if you, if you don't like this, then, no, no, that's, that's not okay. Well, you have to be about the truth and you have to do so in gentleness and you got to figure out how to run into conflict to solve it, to be a peacemaker. We don't avoid it and we don't create it. Does that make sense? One of you's on board, and it's my mom. Okay. <laughs> Some people say, you know, I would believe in God if I could just see miracles. And, and our job is to love each other so well that we go, you want to see a miracle? Come to church. Right? Yeah, you want to see a miracle? They happen all the time. All you got to do is come see how well we love each other. And if you can't say that about your church, then we've got a problem. And it's on us to fix it. Because what it means is there's, there's an area of my heart that is still preference-driven or that is selfish or that is arrogant or that is impatient and I haven't let the spirit deal with me and now it's negatively impacting you and we have to work on that or else it damages the testimony of the church to a broken world. What, what, what is it we point to in a dark, dysfunctional world that is the hope of the world if the church just acts like the outside world does? What am I pointing at? Hey, come in here. It's the same as it is out there, except we have less comfortable seating. Right? Why come if we aren't a manifestation of the glory of God changing us to love one another so everyone else can go, man, I don't know what that is, but I want a part of that. Because when the gospel is being lived out in the pews, it is attractive. In fact, it's irresistible. It is irresistible. People can't stay away. Because we act in a way by loving one another that is inexplicable to the outside world and outside the power of Christ. It matters. So it matters because of evangelism. And listen, <clears throat> Part of the reason we're doing this series and part of the reason we get unity wrong all the time and we don't prioritize it at the top of the list and we, and we move it way down on the list is that we just get the concept of church wrong in general. 
I mean, we're absolutely horrible about how we perceive church. And we've all done this because we've grown up in America. We just have this weird thing. But listen to me, the church is not a social club. It's not where you come for fun events. It's not, it's not about, it's not optional. It's, you don't treat this like it's secular. This is the, it's supposed to be the family of God. It's not optional. It's mandatory. It's not a club. It's not about activities. I read this quote this week and I loved it. It says this, Christ does not call us to join a church. I don't know if you know that. You read all the New Testament. It does not call you to join a church. It calls you to submit to a church. Boy, we hate that word, don't we? Come on, submit to a church. The church is not simply another voluntary society like the Boy Scouts or the Sierra Club. It is an embassy of Christ's kingdom. Listen, and kings do not offer suggestions. Woo! That's a mic drop moment. Somebody get me a t-shirt. Kings do not offer suggestions, sell products, or provide resources that people can take or leave. The church is the embassy of the king. It's not optional. It's not voluntary. It's not secular. It is the family of God, and we should treat it and cherish it as such. And when we don't, when we become ungrateful, begin to overlook the church, our attitude begins to speak volumes for how we feel about one another. Lastly, unity in the church is a true test of idolatry versus worship. Idolatry versus worship. And let me see if I can explain to this, this to you. Um, what is it we come in to worship on a Sunday morning? There's the old joke uh, that the guy goes to the pastor after, at the end of service and he goes, hey, pastor, you know, it's good today, but um, I really didn't like the music. And the pastor's like, oh, it's a good thing we weren't worshiping you. We would never say that here because we're gentle. But I heard someone say it. But what's the, what's the point of even the joke? Okay, he, he, let me tell you why this matters, right? When, when we come in, the, the, the point of meeting together Okay, you, you, everyone turns to Hebrews and says, you know, points to the verse that says, do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. But then you go to the next verse that says, but encourage each other all the more. So, so the point of meeting together is to encourage each other. I don't know if you, you, you got that. The point of church coming together on a, on a service, these corporate services, is to encourage each other. It's to hear the word proclaimed. It's to re-gospel ourselves so it continues to saturate and metabolize into our bodies and seep into our bones to change us. It's just be encouraged. Now, here's the thing, okay? If I'm encouraging you based on anything else than what is the gospel itself, then I'm encouraging you with something that's temporal. So if I'm encouraging you with like good tunes, here's the problem with that. That's temporal. You, you don't build a foundation on any of those things. You build a foundation that lasts on the gospel. So, so when we come into worship and to encourage one another, we're pointing at Christ in you to be encouraged. So, so this, this idea of being called to one hope which belongs to our calling, one hope, it's, the, it's what we're always encouraged by. Because the moment we start to be encouraged by something other than our one hope, it's fleeting. 
It's fool's gold. So, so if all of a sudden you come in to be encouraged by the current political climate, let me just tell you where that's going to end up. Right? Anyone got a lot of confidence in the political climate? Even when you think it's going good, we should all know it's probably not going to go good in four more years. That's how it works. We're called to one hope. There's one thing we point to that's worthy of encouragement. And if you get it wrong, you're selling someone something that's a false gospel. Look back at Ephesians 2. We did that a couple, couple of months ago. We covered Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. I want you to hear this, okay? This is the one hope. I want you to be encouraged here. I want to, I want to explain why I'm reading this again. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ. I'm going to say that again. Remember that you, say me, were at that time separated from Christ. You remember your pre-Jesus days, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you, say me, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Our one hope is Jesus, drawing near to Jesus. Now, the church's glory, the church is God's glory being manifested in you and me. I want you to see this in Colossians. This is the one hope, but this is why we meet together. This is what we're encouraged by. This is what we're pointing to. This is the big deal. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. And you, say me, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, say me, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. To them, this is verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, say me, the hope of glory. So listen to me, listen to me. The only encouragement, the only real eternal encouragement when we meet on a Sunday morning is that I get to look at you, 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 I get to say, Christ, what Christ is doing in you right now is the hope of glory. It is the very manifestation of God's power on earth, and it's here, and I see it in you, and I see it changing you, and I see it making you into something different, and that is encouraging because that tells me that no matter how dark my days are, I can take another step, I can wake up tomorrow, I can pick up my cross, I can follow Jesus. Jesus, because I see what God's doing in you, and that's worthy of encouragement. And anything else is fool's gold. Anything else is pointing to a false gospel. Anything else is idolatry. You say, well, why does that matter? I get it, but why does that matter about unity? Listen to me. What the church does is it takes Christ in you, the hope of glory, and it puts it on stage. It it, It displays it. So so that we get to see one another and we get to see Christ's work in you and be encouraged by it, that we're not alone, that God is still at work. And the flip side of that, listen, that's why the temptation to disunity, the temptation to dissension, to enmity, to, to, to division is so contemptuous because the, the, the temptation to disagree and disregard Christ in you That is to disregard the manifestation of God's glory on earth. 
The hope of the world is Christ in you. So if I come in and I'm more concerned about arguing and dissension and division than I am about Christ in you, I'm treating what Christ is doing like it's worthless. So so when we would rather fight or argue instead of making peace and bearing with one another, what we're saying is the glory of God manifested in you is just not worth very much to me. Not worth my time. Not worth my hope. Not worth my sacrifice. Not worth growing closer to you and being encouraged by Christ in you, the hope of glory, because I need it my way. I want to be right, and I want things to be my preference. That's idolatry. Like, idolatry... Is, is, is creating something in the image of God and then worshiping it. So when you say God's glory must be manifested in you in a way that I like and prefer or else I can't worship, you're making an idol. You're making something to worship. When, when I, I've heard this. When people say like, man, I can't, I can't come in and worship and grow in this building because it doesn't have enough of a downtown vibe. I'm like, that's idolatry. It's too suburban. That's idolatry. The music isn't loud enough. That's idolatry. The music's too loud. Also idolatry. <laughs> I had someone tell me, I'm not kidding you. I had someone tell me, I can't, I cannot worship. I just, I can't listen at all because the pastor's not wearing shoes. I said, man, tilt your chin higher. You won't even notice. <laughs> Are you kidding me? That's the value that you put in Christ in these people, how little we think of it. We are worshiping the God who knit us together. And he manifests his glory to the outside world through our differences being united. So are you worshiping God or are you worshiping something else? Because the God of the Bible took diverse groups and showed the world a miracle in it. So every time you and I decide that unity isn't worth the work, that we can't strive for this and be encouraged by it, we're idol worshiping. We are. I've done it and so have you. So the big takeaway though I said at the beginning, unity is a command because kings don't make suggestions. Because of its evangel- uh, evangelistic impact, what it says to the outside world, its Trinitarian nature, the fact that it mimics the character of God, and the slippery slope into idolatry. So here's my question for you. What is standing in the way of you being more united, more encouraged by, more involved in the community of the church? Remember that person I told you to think about at the beginning of the service? What is it going to take to love them well? What's it going to take? Is it a perspective shift to value the people of God and the body of Christ and the bride of Christ the way the Bible tells us to? Is it forgiveness for someone? Because for a lot of us, it's forgiveness if we're being really honest. Man, someone hurt us, and we have not let that go. Do you need to repent? It is the natural course 
of the Christian life that the Holy Spirit will rot in you and work in you toward repentance? Do you need to recommit to the body of Christ, to the people, to a community group, to a team here? What I'm going to do right now is I'm going to pray over us and our service. And here's what I'd ask you to do. As we have a time response and a song, I'd ask you to just talk to the Lord and ask him to search you. Now, where is it that I have devalued the body of Christ? Where I have worshiped what is more an idol of my own creation than the manifestation of your glory, Christ in us, the hope of glory. What is it that I need to change in my life to encourage others, be encouraged by others, and participate in the body? To strive to unity. Let's pray.